uh, regarding God's judgment and his salvation and his restoration of all things. And so we're calling the back half of, of that, you know, life for eternity. And so that's kind of how the book breaks out. And uh, you're, you're maybe like, hey, how does this apply to us? We're going to get to that in a second. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 1, um, where we're going to meet God's people being disoriented and discouraged in a world that's, and a nation and a place that's really not their forever home. And is not a place that is honoring the God of the Bible, that even honors them as individuals with unique identities, but really seeks to be a culture that, that oppresses them in a way uh, not to their flourishing, but to their compliance with not who God wants them to be, but who Babylon wants them to be. I could say more, but I want the intro to go quickly here so we can get into the text. I've broken the text today, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 21, into four different sections. And, and the first one is this, uh, verses 1 and 2, where we're really going to see just a setting of the stage. So if you want to name this section, this is, this is setting of the stage right here um, to, to get us introed into what's going on. It says this, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the third year in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay, if you're not like a history student or you don't really know what's going on, I want to catch us up into uh, the story where the first part, like we said, is life in exile, right? This is, this is not just Daniel in exile, but God with him in exile. Uh, and so um, what we see here is not just, you know, don't be like Babylonians, be like Daniel, but we're going to see God being faithful to his people. And so the first big idea I want you to know is this. We are all exiles. Every single one of us, whether you know it or not, are all exiles. And maybe you're like, no, no, I'm not an exile. I'm Babylonian born and bred. Like, like on the playground is where I spent most of my days, right? Like you, you grew up in Babylon, and you're like, no, this is, this is my place. Or, I mean, I'm an American, or I'm a Canadian, or I, I came from another nation. Like, like, like now I'm not an exile. You know, this, this is my home. And, and I'll submit to you that, that to know the story and the narrative of the Bible, that, that God's story of redemption for his people, it begins in a garden where God created everything good. And he said, hey, men and women, you guys are made for a purpose Male and female, he created them. He placed them in the garden, said, be fruitful and multiply. Create systems and cities of flourishing for all. And very quickly, an enemy comes in, seduces humanity, gets them to reject God for them being their own God, which doesn't lead to greater flourishing, but actually leads to, to in fact, their slavery and to their shame. And so people have this immediate identity crisis. I don't know who I am anymore. I was created by God, but now I'm worried that God is afraid of me. I, I was put in relationship with this man or woman, and, and now I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I like them anymore, or, or maybe if they like me. And, and then they, they look at themselves in a mirror if they had one, and, and, and they see shame, and they see a disconnect from who God made them to be to who they believe they are now. And in the midst of that, God is, is, he is gracious and merciful. He calls them out, but also if the garden is this perfect and holy place of flourishing where perfect God is with his creation that he says is good, God says, well, well there's sin now, there's rebellion now, there's rejection now. And so that means that and I'm sorry, children, but you're, you're exiled from the garden. Not forever. He gives them hope. He says, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to send one 
who's going to carry you out of exile, who's going to take you to a promised land flowing with milk and honey that's going to not place you in another garden, but is actually going to place you in a city that you didn't build and, and where, where you're going to be a, a whole person again, mind, body, and soul in communion with God. And, and part of that is going to be through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in your place, dying for your sins, rising again, so that in him, when your identity is in him, you have hope for newness of life now and forever. But in the interim, right, there's, there's God's people and, and, and they, they raise up and they end up getting enslaved in Egypt. We talked about that last week. They were led through uh, a wilderness. They, they did come to a promised land and you're like, man, everything must be going great. Uh, they get to King David and everyone's like, yeah, David 2024, that'd be fantastic. Well, he's not morally qualified, so there's that, uh, right? You know, he's, he's a failure too. And yet God's people had overwhelming, like, like influence, Solomon comes in, and I was just reading it this week, and I was talking with my wife about it because Solomon invites the Queen of Sheba over, and she looks at Solomon's kingdom, and it says it took her breath away. And we're like, golden, yeah, good times are here again. Like, this has got to be what God promised. Only generation comes and goes, kings become less and less faithful. The united tribes of Israel get divided through civil war, Israel gets taken over, and then eventually Judah. And, and the last king, Jehoiakim, says in uh, 1 Kings that, that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was not a faithful king of God's people. And so it's in that context that the Babylonians show up. Right? You got Israel and Jerusalem over here. You got the Babylonians, you know, coming in from like modern day Iraq and, and back in the area where the Tower of Babel was. And, and then like, dang, it's over. Party over. I mean, we're at 605 BC. This is really happened in history. So when I, when I say narrative, I don't mean fairy tale. I mean, what happened in history? It's 605 BC, six centuries before Jesus shows up. Nebuchadnezzar's encircled Jerusalem. He takes the city, and with Jerusalem fallen, God's people can no longer kind of pretend that there's no evil in the world. They can't pretend that there aren't systems and structures, maybe even nations and cultures that are opposed to God. They can't even pretend that they're the good people because their own king was one that was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They are not this amazing nation that's blessing all other nations. They're now a defeated nation, a conquered land, an exiled people. Hope absolutely looks dead. They are absolutely on decline. God absolutely looks absent. And that leads us to point number two. Yet through all of that, God is in control. Throughout the book of Daniel, throughout all of human history, throughout whatever situations you're dealing with personally or professionally or in our community, every time you turn on the news and are like, really? God is in control. God is in control, and I'm not just like, that's not like just a little theology sauce to make it all feel better. Even when it appears that his influence isn't growing in the way we expect or that his purposes are being thwarted. I mean, I mean, how much worse could it look than Israel's king being deposed and taken out by Babylon? I mean, just think about Israel like, like Kabul last year in Afghanistan. Like the Babylonians are there. They've taken over. What's going on? They're all going to get let out refugees and exiles everywhere, human suffering. Like, oh really, God's in charge? It doesn't seem like it. This is a, a bad, bad chapter. And yet, I want you to look at verse two. Who's credited with the victory? I mean, Babylon was strong. They were stronger than Israel, but, but it doesn't say Babylon and their strength overwhelmed the Israelites and, and the tribe of Judah. It doesn't say King Nebuchadnezzar with his awesome war council and his just amazing strategy just outflanked God's people. What does verse 2 say? Verse 2, super clear. And the Lord gave. 
You're like, oh, I want the Lord to give. Ooh, the Lord gave Jehoiakim over to Judah. That's why I think it's so important for us to, to, to not just watch the movie of history, but read the book. And, and the reason I say this, you, you watch the movie of history, it does not look at times like God is in charge. I mean, specifically even in the text, he says, and the Lord gave them over. And then it starts talking about like, like the vessels. Well, what does that mean? He was, he was talking about like, like these holy items that were in Israel's temple that was used for sacrifice, for communion with God. Like these, these things that, that represented God's relationship with his people. And they were, they were taken the temple was defiled, and it says they were, they were taken and not just put in storage so they could be watched by Babylonians' top men, but they were like, they were placed in the house of Babylon's God. I mean, if there's ever a moment where you're like, our God's winning, your God's losing, it's when we take the stuff from your God's temple and put it in ours. Later in chapter, uh, it's either five or six, I believe it's chapter five, um, one of the later kings says, bring me some of that stuff. I want to I drink from it. Like he's, he's like, like drinking from a boot at a frat party. He's like, bring me some of the stuff from the temple so I can party with it. And, and not only that, where they take it matters. The land of Shinar, uh, I know you all know this, and I knew it too before I researched it totally, um, was it's in the same place, they believe, where the Tower of Babel was a place that represented humanity's pride united around overthrowing God's rule. If I'm watching the movie of history, I don't question if God's dead. I say he's dead, gone, and defeated. But if I am rooted in God's word and looking at history, then even a simple phrase, and God and the Lord gave, tells me even in the midst of the most defiling, like what is going on in the world times, God is in control. And that should give us, I believe, comfort. I believe it should give us resolve. That this isn't just how we're going to endure when things are terrible, but that we see that God is active in all situations. All right, how does that apply to us? I mean, like, hey, that's great for, for them. I mean, how does that apply for us? Well, um, th that leads me to my next point, that as we look at where we are today, I want you to understand that we are living in the United States of Babylon. And I know that's tough, because I think some of us believe that maybe we were, we were born in the new heavens and new earth. Or that we're the great shining city on a hill. I mean, I, I love me some Ronald Reagan. I named my daughter Reagan. Um, and, and so we think that kind of we're, we're the last best hope for the world. And, and, and don't hear me wrongly. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of America. I root for America over the other nations, particularly in things like the Olympics and all that stuff. But like, like it could be the United States of Babylon. Or if we were preaching and talking about this in China, it could be the People's Republic of Babylon. Or if we were in a nation in Europe, we'd call it the Babylonian Union, right? That Babylon is any place or space that is not explicitly and overtly under the rule, or rather I shouldn't say under the rule, but, but it is um, opposed to the God of the Bible. And, and, I, and I say that because I want you to understand that there's, well, there's many kingdoms in the earth that from a spiritual standpoint, from an understanding of history, there are really only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of humanity opposed to God. And then there is the kingdom of God. And I think it's important for us, if you're someone who says, I'm a Christian, or someone who says, um, you know, I believe in the God of the Bible, that, you, that you're able to differentiate the kingdom of God with the kingdom of humanity. And that doesn't mean like, hey, let's get all of our laws right and, and, and get the right people in office and then, and then we'll be God's kingdom. Like, I want you to know, like, God's not waiting to be elected. God's not sweating out the midterms, right? God's like, I'm on the throne yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. Psalm 2 says the nation's plot in vain, it says, and God holds them in derision. They ultimately all will kiss the sun, all will acknowledge 
King Jesus. And so I don't want us to to hate and rail on Babylon because I believe actually God loves Babylon. Part of how God loves Babylon is having faithful people in Babylon. We'll see that throughout the book here. But I do want us to understand that Babylon or worldview or culture, those aren't bad words. They're not four-letter words, right? But they're never neutral. Nothing is ever neutral. It's either aligned with the purposes and will of God or it's misaligned from the purposes and will of God. And we can debate and discuss like what all those things are. I mean, those are valuable discussions, but, but really at the end of the day, that's the, that's the dichotomy. And so I want us to be aware of, of, of what's influenced us, aware of what agendas might be out there, and then ask ourselves, are these aligned with the will of God? That, that really, that, that, that when we say, excuse me, that we want to be disciples who love God and love people, that we should be about intentional discipleship. And I say that because it's not really a word you hear much in the world, but like the world and Babylon makes disciples. Everything is making a disciple of something. Everyone is being discipled by someone or something. And so I just believe fundamentally that as the people of God, we need to be intentional about our discipleship of ourselves, of one another, of the next generation, because Babylon for sure is being very intentional. And we're going to see that here in the next section. Verses 3 through 7. We're going to move on uh, quickly here. Verses 3 through 7. Um, I've titled this section Grooming 101. Let's read it and talk about it. Verse 3 through 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ahazariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Ahazariah, he called Abednego. All right, let, let, let's stop here. Um, so like we said, hey, city encircled, God's people, like, like, defeated. They're now led away in exile. And, and Babylon, w- w- as they're looking to, um, t- to kind of take over God's people, there's lots of ways you can do that, right? You can, you can be aggressive and domineering with more laws or mandates or something like that. Or, or, or you, c- you could woo through like, hey, let's, let's get them in some sense to, to choose Babylon. And, and to be clear, this is absolutely a mixture of both, right? They were for sure led away in exile. I'm sh- like, I just, I want you to, to think about the scene that, that might have happened as Babylonian stormtroopers come in and, 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 and grab the, the sons and daughters of, of the tribe of Judah and nobility and says, oh, who's, who's the most articulate? Who's the most attractive? Who has the most opportunity for influence? Let's grab them and take them. That was violent for sure. But then as they led them away back to Babylon, there's four different ways that they assimilate them into Babylonian culture. Or like I said, you could say grooming 101. And there's four different ways. Number one is this, assimilation through influence. Okay, assimilation through influence, or rather assimilation through influencers. Okay, everybody knows what an influencer is, right? Right, it's anybody that has more followers on anything than you do, right? Unless we have some, okay, I I met somebody this summer that had like 30,000 followers on Instagram, and I was like, I I don't even know what to do with that, and um, good for you, that's great. So they had a good little business on the side, it's working really well for them, okay. These are influencers. They're, they're, They're conquered, Babylon's plan to rule over God's people is let's get the most influential people from that culture, the ones that the next generation will follow, 
And let's bring them to Babylon. And let's assimilate them systematically, intentionally, and effectively. They go right at the children of those with influence. And in doing so, it does a few things. One, it ends the legacy of God's people. As we'll see, they become eunuchs, so, so there's no longer an opportunity for these young men to, to, to pass on a legacy uh, into the next generation with children. And, and, and then, also, let's get them removed and separated from the, uh, the influence of their parents, of their community, of their nation, and of their language. And he says, we're going to take them and then we'll either send them back to Israel to, to influence other Israelites, or we'll keep them in Babylon to, to help rule and, and serve in Babylon. Like I said, they took the cream of the crop, the, the most attractive, the most gifted, the most talented, will have the most influence, and who others would most want to emulate. And they are placed in what many might consider one of the best boarding schools that ever was, Right, they're given food directly from the king's table. It's interesting. I mean, like, if, if not for the eunuch thing, if you were Babylonian, you might want to get your kids in this program. I mean, this is like one of the best leadership development programs that's ever existed. We're going to teach you our ways, our language. Okay, we'll get to that in, in a second. And so they're brought in. Um, they are, like I said, eunuchs now, which is not in the word search, just so you know. No eunuchs in the word search, Okay. And so the exiled people's hope, I mean, imagine you're a parent or a grandparent of those that have been led out of exile. The hope for their future is now in subjugation and service to the people who are going to oppress them. Mom and dad, you have no more access or influence to your children. Grandma and grandpa, you've been cut off. They're in Babylonian exile now. You don't get to be part of the formative parts of their lives. The community of God's people doesn't get to pass along the culture, the heritage, the history. And, and make no mistake, this wasn't like just something that was a side effect. This is absolutely what Babylon wanted to have happen. That leads us to number two. So first is assimilation through influencers. Number two is worldview through education. What, what does it say they're going to do? It says that they're going to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans, they're this ruling political class within Babylon. So they were the most elite of the elite. They were the ones who had like, like hands on government, hands on spirituality. They were diviners and kind of magicians and they saw visions and all these different things. And so I want you to think of it this way. Like I said, a boarding school. And it's kind of two parts. Excuse me. One is like the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. You know, that's like where, where like everyone gets trained up to go into politics down the road and all that stuff. So Harvard Kennedy School of Government paired up with Harry Potter's Hogwarts, right? They're going to like learn spell books and incantations and all these different things. And, and, and out of that, you are going to be the most elite people in Babylon. Like I said, if not for the eunuch thing, you might want your kids to apply for this. Be like, I got a scholarship to the Babylonian like, like boarding school. That'd be great. And they say, you're going to learn. You're going to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Babylon is going to tell you how you see the world. Babylon is going to tell you how we interact with language, what words mean, what they don't mean anymore. Babylon is going to be the one that influences how you understand history, how you understand theology, how you understand sociology, all of those different things. Babylon's going to train you up, and you're going to drink deeply from its popular culture. You're going to shape how you see the world, what's good, what's bad. And this is where... Um, like, we have to understand, I never want us to be like, we hate culture, because that's, I mean, culture is just how people express ideas and values. So, culture can be good and positive and for flourishing, or, or not. But don't underestimate the impact culture has on you and on me. I mean, like I said, lifelong Babylonian checking in here. Been watching Babylonian TV since I was way too young. 
right? Now we're all on Babylonian TikTok. Well, I mean, I'm not, like, over 40. I don't think they even let you on TikTok, which is for the best. No one needs to see dances, right? Oh, funny thing about cultural shaping, though. TikTok, a Chinese app, right? Um, here in the U.S., what it's, it's always goofy dances and, like, all sorts of weird stuff. It just, like, just makes you, like, an idiot after 10 minutes. In China, it's um, videos of engineers, mathematicians, strong families, shaping a culture. And so here they are, they're getting educated by Babylon and culture has a powerful ability to shape your worldview and, and I want us to understand like every aspect of culture preaches something, right? Every, every blog you read, every tweet you read, every movie you watch, every show you watch, it's shaping a narrative somehow about how you see the world. And these guys are gonna be educated by them for three years long enough to break down any other influences they might have had leading up to that time. I mean, imagine a three-year boarding school. All you're speaking is Babylonian. All you're interacting with is Babylonians. I even forgot who mom and dad were. And you know what's funny? Mom and dad, I remember the last time I saw mom and dad, our, our city was in ruins. It was a ghetto. Jerusalem was under siege. I, I'm trying to remember my history. The temple might have even been like, like, like destroyed or injured at that point. I don't know if I even like Jerusalem. Gosh, this Babylon's pretty great. Are you kidding me? Best of the king's table? Elite of the elite? My mom and dad just believe this old, bigoted way of thinking. Babylon, so tolerant. Babylon, so inclusive. I want you to ask yourself, with your 6, 16, 42, 68, we've all had a lifetime of learning from the culture of our world. Where are you learning from? How are you being educated? And what influences your worldview? I, I think it matters because Babylon always wants to make more disciples. That leads us to number three. Number one was assimilation through influencers. Number two was worldview through education. Number three that Babylon does in, in terms of grooming these guys is identity through their name. So um, these four guys are brought up, Daniel, uh, uh, Michel, um, Hazariah, and uh, the other guy. Um, yeah, Michel, okay, uh, Hananiah. And they're, they're registering uh, day one orientation of um, Harvard, Hogwarts, and Babylon. And they, they walk up, and there's probably somebody who's, you, you know, kind of like filling out their names and everything and giving them their, their dorm assignments, and, you know, you're, you're in, you know, this house, and you're in this house kind of deal. Uh, and, and they come up, and, and, and all right, what, what's, your, what's your name? And, and I want you to know, like, in our culture, I mean, names are kind of like whatever parents just want to name their kids, right? You know, like McKinsley Grayson or something like that. Like, if that's your kid's name, that's awesome. Um, but like, you know, like, I name my daughter Reagan. Yeah, I name my daughter Karis, good for grace, right? You know, like, names have some meanings. But in this culture, your name was your identity. Your name was a sermon you were proclaiming to the world about what was true about the world and about yourself. And so, so Daniel gets up, he's got his three buddies with him, and, and the chief eunuch, who I just have to imagine didn't volunteer for that job, I have to imagine he's probably somebody brought in through exile, raised up, worked through that system, maybe even deep down, not a huge fan of the whole Babylon thing on account of, again, the eunuch thing. And, and he said, okay, what's, what's your name? And he says, my name's Daniel. And he's like, okay, well, that, that's great. What does that mean? Hebrew, I want to know what that means. Oh, that's great. It means God is my judge. Meaning if God is my judge, then it doesn't really matter what Babylon says about me. If God is my judge, it doesn't matter what, what my sin says about me. If God is my judge, it doesn't matter what my friends or cultural world around says about me. What God is my judge. And the guy's like, that's not going to fly. That's your dead name. We're not going to call you that anymore. You're going to be reborn in Babylon. And your new pronouns are Belta and Shazar. And that means not God is my judge, but the pagan god Baal will protect me. Your name shows allegiance. And the next guys get up, and you have Ahazariah, whose name means Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is my help. 
meaning I'm somebody who's dependent on the God of the Bible. He is my help. He's the one that meets me in affliction. He's the one who's comforting me through that, that like the hundreds and hundreds of mile journey being led out of Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. The last thing I'm sure his parents said was, don't forget your name. God is your help. Trust Jesus no matter what. Whatever they say or do, just love and follow Jesus. And he gets up and he says, yeah, mine is Yahweh is my help. And they say, no, 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 we're changing your name to Abednego. Meaning not that God is there to help you. You're actually a servant of the God Naboo. Now I know Naboo is a, a, a city in Star Trek, or Star Wars, I'm, I'm blue and all, okay? Right, it's, it's a planet, all right? But they named it, actually, it's actually just another Babylonian God that you don't, the God of the Bible is not gonna help you. You now exist to serve the gods of the Babylonians. Meshach and Abednego from Hananiah and Mishael are also homages to Babylonian gods. It would be like if um, a tribe of, of Jewish men was overrun by like Islamic extremists and they say, you're no longer Matthew, your new name is Mohammed. And make no mistake, Babylon right now would love nothing more than to have every member of this generation, my generation, younger, older, all that, to completely rethink identity in a way that is not what God has said about you or how God has created you, but is what Babylon says about you. Or, I mean, that's, I don't know, I don't want Babylon to be in control. Guess what? We all have a Babylon inside us that wants to be in charge. My personal Babylon is my highest authority beyond what creation says about me, what God says about me. And so these guys start off in Babylon with new identities. As eunuchs, they have what we call today bottom surgery. Because Babylon says this generation's not gonna move on. And so I want you to ask yourself, what is your identity? Where do you derive it from? What is, what is able to change or undermine your sense of identity? And then I also wanna be clear that like, you know, when we, when we think about even an issue like that, we might talk about uh, identity and, and, and gender and sexuality a little bit more when we get um, to later chapters when you see Nebuchadnezzar uh, just become beastly in things. But I, 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 want, I don't want to be remiss and be like, all right, cool, we hammered this like cultural Babylonian thing. I, I want like, these are real people, image bearers in the name, like, made in the image and likeness of God who are worthy of respect and dignity and compassion. And so Christian, your battle is never against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and powers. That's what Ephesians says. That there's worldviews and ideas that we might need to combat or lift up what's true in ways that are ultimately compelling and life-giving. But let's just not be people that are yelling at Babylonians. Let's be people of compassion, recognizing that maybe, maybe there's people who've been let off into exile, and they don't even know it's exile. They think it's great. Maybe they're people that we're related to or people that we know and people we care about. Nothing's changed from the beginning of the story. No matter how deep into exile it seems like someone is. Verse two said God is still in charge. Their story is not over yet. Praise God it's already written. That we know that in Christ our stories end well. And so, that leads us to number four. We're gonna keep moving on. Number one, was, uh, number, number one was assimilation through influencers. Number two, worldview through education. Number three, identity through name. Number four was allegiance through appetite. Okay, um, you've all heard like, right, we don't bite the hand that feeds us. Who you believe your provider is, is who you pledge your allegiance to. So you're like, no, yeah, I mean, I don't want to pledge allegiance to government. I'm like a great hard worker, business owner, whatever. Like, that's great. That's awesome. You know, maybe you think you're your provider. Maybe you're like, hey, I, I've had it rough. Like, man, I don't like this governmental system. I want government to be my provider. 
right? Maybe you've lost your job, and you're like, well, I used to be my provider, now I don't know who my provider is. I want us to be reminded that in all seasons, and all circumstances, God is our provider. He provided for his people in the garden. He gave them food. He gave them purpose and meaning and identity. And even in their sin, it says that he provided them with a sacrifice to cover their shame, to pay for their sin, to, to help protect them. And so here they're given great food by the king's table. You're like, what more could you want? This is awesome. Because this is not like, like, you know, you watch a, a documentary about POWs, which is, I, know, I like to do that. I don't know why that's my idea of fun. Um, but like you, you read about like the men who were on the Bataan Death March in World War II and, and what they went through in terms of like being poorly fed, malnourished, like no um, you know, medical attention. No, this is the opposite. This isn't like POW. This is like college football training table. You show up, it's got everything. It's got the best wine, the best drink, the best um, uh, like, like, like of all animals and, and meat and all that stuff. And, and in the midst of that, they make it really, really clear. All the meat on this table, we sacrifice to Naboo. We sacrifice to Baal. Because Naboo and Baal, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they are your gods. They are the ones who provide for you. They are the ones who feed you. Where your provider is, you pledge allegiance to. And so it, it starts to like form their appetite, right? You start like getting a taste for something, that becomes your appetite. Uh, and so I want you to ask yourself, what is your appetite for? What do you crave? What is it that feeds and satisfies? Where have you, where have you been dependent and pledged allegiance to something that, excuse me, ultimately... It doesn't satisfy. See, for Daniel, there were certain things he couldn't avoid. He had to be taken out of Jerusalem by force. He was made a eunuch, likely by force. But now, where can he resist? He can resist at the table, at what's provided by the king. And that leads us to verses 18 through 16. How do disciples of Jesus who don't want to be defiled by Babylon, how do they respond? And I've called this section resolved to resist. We'll see here that Daniel's resolved to resist. Verses 8 through 16 says this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should you, he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? Would you endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Ahazariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in the matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay. So the assimilation plan's going great. Everybody is on board. They're eating the food, all these things. But, but, but out of all of Israel's exiles, a few say, nope, not gonna be defiled that way. You can take me out of my land. You can take off my manhood, but I will not intake what you tell me I have to intake. And he actually gets favor from the Lord. And I think what's amazing about this is I, I do believe that there's a model here for how Christians should engage with the world. It's not if you can't beat them, join them. And it's not, well, let's just, just start a revolution. He doesn't do that. He doesn't like get all the other guys together. He doesn't like, let's go protest in the middle of the streets. Let's, uh, let's go overthrow the government. Let's go throw a brick through a business or storm the Capitol. Uh-uh, none of that. They just are resolved to as much as is up to them, not be defiled by what Babylon's doing to them. And, and I just, they don't lead a radical revolution. They're respectful 
to, oddly, the God-given authorities over them. And, and they're, they're really clear. They're like, I don't want to be defiled. And so Daniel respectfully appeals to the highest authority he has access to. He says, hey, can, can you give me a religious exemption so I don't have to eat at the king's table? And the guy's like, bro, this is Nebuchadnezzar policy. I can't let you do it this way and they do it that way because at the end of the day, it's not your head, it's my head. See, even when a leader has favor for you in Babylon, they might have their hands tied over what they're able to do. And I think, again, that should inform compassion in us, empathy in us, that maybe not everybody you interact with that's a non-believer is, is a full-on Babylonian. Maybe they're just trying to not get their head lopped off. Maybe they're looking around at the cultural winds and they're like, I'm not all in on this stuff, but if I poke my head up, it's going to be taken out. And so Daniel, he, he doesn't get his exemption from, from the head guy, and, but yet he's undeterred. He's like, well, okay, okay. I didn't get one officially from the chief eunuch. I'm just going to go to the actual guy who gives us the food. And that guy is, again, not a true believer. He's, he's just a pragmatist. Daniel's like, hey, just, just, just let us just eat the vegetables and the water. And, and, and then at the end of 10 days, like, let's just trust the science and like, see like, if, if we do it this way and they do it this way, are there different outcomes? And so the guy's like, yeah, I mean, sure, that's fine. You get 10 days. It's not a very long time. And what's amazing about this is, is so, so they let them do it, and, and they're not on Whole30, they're on Veggie 10, right? Nothing but vegetables for 10 days. And if you grew up uh, in church in the maybe 90s and early 2000s, big mega church pastor was like, you know, be a Daniel, here's the Daniel diet for how to lose weight. Um, gosh, I really wish you would have talked to a good Old Testament scholar. I was honored to get to be at this dinner that I did not belong at years ago with these really, really intelligent people. Um, and one of them was um, this amazing Old Testament scholar that said, hey, it's not, it doesn't blow you away, but I mean, really, in verse 15, it says after 10 days, they were fatter. Okay. Imagine for a second, you eat nothing but water and vegetables for 10 days. And at the end of it, you're like, ooh, these buttons are working even harder. I would be so mad. I would be, I would be so upset. You know, I would like, no, no, give me back to the keto. Let's, let's go back to, to, to wine and steak. We'll do that diet. That one has to go better. See, eunuchs were not these like supermen. They were really to be seen as kind of soft, androgynous people that weren't a threat to the, like the women in the court that didn't have another agenda. Like, they, they can't worry about their legacy because it's done. And so a eunuch like looked a lot less svelte and, and a lot more like soft. Let's say soft. And after 10 days, Daniel and his guys, they are fatter than all the other guys. And they're like, all right, let's, let's go. You can keep doing that. You can keep eating veggies undefiled. I mean, that's a miracle of the Lord. Not one I've ever prayed for, nor will ever pray for. God, make me bigger by eating less. No, I want it totally the other way around. Give me that. Is there like a pill I can take where I can just eat all I want? Okay, anyway. So God gets the credit. God gets, he said, he gave them favor, and then here they are. They're, 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 they're like more in line with who Babylon wants them to be at the end. They have a better outcome than those who were eating at the king's table and, and following what the king said. And so the guy goes, all right, you're done. No more meat for you, period. And that leads us to this last section. Because, I mean, man, we're going to see Daniel's life over the next 70 years, which is amazing. Years and years of faithfulness. And we're going to see a few moments of key resistance. Over 70 years, a few moments, where they say, I can't go that far. I can't say that. I can't stand up for that. I can't believe in that. Overwhelmingly, their life probably looked really Babylonian. And so it leads us to this last text as we close things out. Verses 17 through 21 says this. 
how things go for them at the end of the training. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of time, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ahazariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's a, a date marker, 70 years later. What do we learn from this at the end? Wow, I, I mean, it, it says here again, that God gave them wisdom and learning. That God outgives whatever Babylon wants to take. God will outgive whatever Babylon wants to take. This is the third time in this text that it says God is a giver. All we've seen from Babylon, they are a taker. They take and they take and they take. And we see our God gives, our God gives, our God gives. Sometimes he even gives them into exile gives them favor. He gives them learning and knowledge. And so um, they've been three years in the Harvard Hogwarts, and they don't just like get by or like start the like, you know, young Hebrews of the Hogwarts school thing, like let's get turning point, uh, uh, Israel in here, and like let's fight whatever's going on, on the campus. No, no, no. They graduate summa cum laude from Babylon's Harvard Hogwarts. Top of the class, best at enchanting, best at spells. They for sure had pronouns in their bio. They did anything they had to do to be faithful to who God called them to be and navigate the exile they were in in Babylon. And out of that, they were given favor before the, the, the evil king. I mean, like, you know, no, we don't, want, we don't want this king to, to flourish. Well, what's amazing is that God gives them wisdom, knowledge, uh, you know, uh, influence, and through it all, God does it for a few reasons. Number one, he, he gives them favor. That's great. To know that you're favored by the Lord, praise God. He gives them flourishing for themselves and others, and we'll see later that because of the office they were given, the influence they were given, it allowed them and often God's people not just to flourish, but to remain faithful in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of defilement, top of their class. And in doing so, it makes it really, really clear. I mean, I love the like hyperbole here. These guys are 10 times better than, than all the other guys. I think that's a reminder to all of us that God's ways and wisdom are always better for everyone than any amount of Babylonian foolishness. God's ways and wisdom are better than any amount of Babylonian foolishness. Disciples in exile, I never want you to forget your true identity. In these last section of scriptures, it doesn't refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What does it call them by? It calls them by their Hebrew names, by the names their parents gave them, by the names that pledge and claim their allegiance to God that is a reminder that no matter what Babylon says about you, your identity is not defined by Babylon. Your identity is defined by God who is faithful by God who gives, by God who saves, by God who loves, by God who provides. And that can never be taken away from you when your identity is found in Christ. Never forget your true identity. What Babylon says about you does not define you. And then it says that Daniel had influence for 70 years. Oh man, gosh, wouldn't it be great to have Daniel in charge, right? Like I said, Daniel 2024, 20, wouldn't that be great? Now see, our hope is not in Daniel. Our hope is not even that you and I would be better Daniels. Our hope is in Jesus as the better Daniel. 
See where our first half of Daniel looks at his friends in exile, what it means to live in exile today. Um, like they're in a fallen kingdom and they're brought through obedience to a place they didn't want to go and they remain faithful to God the Father in that. But, but I want you to know Jesus actually experienced a greater exile. See, Daniel and his friends, right, they come from Jerusalem, which by that point was kind of a second-rate kingdom. And in some regards, while they're in exile, they kind of, they kind of get to be in the nicest place in, in all the land. Jesus went from the throne room of heaven and willingly exiled himself to the poorest of the poor in Galilee. Whereas Daniel was eventually known throughout the land, Jesus lived for years in obscurity. Where Daniel was given the best of the king's table, it was Jesus who came and fed those who are in need. Our Jesus is an exile with a mission, with a purpose to display God's love to a world that's already in exile of sin. We see that in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, even Babylon, even the United States of Babylon, even the People's Republic of Babylon, yes. God loves Seattle, God loves Marysville, God loves Granite, God loves the world. Even when we hate it, God loves the world. Not that he took sons like Babylon did, but it says he gave his only son. Babylon takes, God gives. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in the order that the world might be saved through him. That means Christians, as we go on mission, and I pray that we do, ours is not a mission of condemnation. Ours is a mission of, of comfort and confirmation of who God is in the good news of the gospel. Let God be the judge of Babylon. We've been sent into Babylon with a message of hope. Yet, we can combat and should engage with ideas that are ultimately harmful. That is A-OK. -okay. And we should love individuals regardless of whatever their ideas or worldviews are. Hoping and praying they would be set free and that they would pledge their allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. If you're discouraged, I don't want any of us to fear Babylon either. And what's amazing about even reading this story is like, anybody like booking a ticket to Babylon right now? No, you can't. Why? It doesn't exist anymore. That kingdom's done. God's kingdom is forever. And so we never have to fear the Babylons of our day because we can have hope in a God who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so, if you're a Christian, I, I want you here in a moment to, to come forward. I want you as we sing to come to the king's table and remember the king's provision of the sacrifice of his son who we remember with his body broken with the bread, his blood shed with the cup and know that that is a God who gives, a God who loves, a God who saves. And then I ask you, live lives, knowing that how many of us have already been defiled by Babylon? How many of us already defiled ourselves, defiled others? We didn't resolve to be undefiled. Know that it's the blood of that cross Jesus sacrificed for you that says you are not defiled, you are clean. That means whatever's defiled us doesn't define us, but his Blood is what defines us as clean so that we can be resolved to live lives where we're not worried about Babylon, but we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.